Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this podcast, Dr. Muriel McClendon, Associate Professor of History at UCLA, and Dr. Teofilo Ruiz, a scholar of social and popular cultures of late medieval and early modern Spain, chat with LA Opera Associate Chorus Master Jeremy Frank about Mozart's Don Giovanni, the fantasy and reality of the story, the meanings of Mozart's music, and the complexity of the histories that centered the story in social roles and agency are discussed in a deep exploration of one of Mozart's most well-known operas. This discussion was recorded as part of LA Opera Connect's professional development series for teachers, Opera for Educators, in January of 2021. This discussion covers some adult topics and may not be suitable for listeners of all ages. I'm extremely excited to be here. I'm really excited to learn from both you, Jeremy and Teo, about uh, Don Giovanni, because I do not know a lot. So first, I'm going to ask each of you to talk a little bit about what you find sort of most interesting about this opera in whatever way you decide to define that. Yeah, well, um, I'll, I'll jump in first. Uh, you know, um, Mozart for opera lovers is uh, one of the biggies. You know, he's one of the pinnacles of the composers. Um, he has a, a really prolific output. Even his earliest works are special, but he caught fire in a very unique way early in his career and got better and better and better. It was premiered in 1788, and uh, it, it constitutes one third of the three uh, highest pinnacles, in my opinion, of uh, Mozart's output. The, we call them the Da Ponte trilogy because the librettist Da Ponte took the stories and created the poetry that Mozart then set. But uh, each of the pieces are interesting because as opposed to uh, pieces that are merely comedic or merely serious. They're an interesting and rather modern mixture of the two aesthetics and, and the two um, ways of writing that had uh, come before this, this period of opera. Um, in many ways, when Mozart started, he was uh, creating a new classical style and rejecting some of the uh, excess as it would have been perceived of the late Baroque era, starting fresh. But then as the decades went, and as he developed as a composer, as a thinker, um, he started getting complicated in new ways and exciting ways that, uh, that seem still relevant today. And I think, you know, um, it, so the Da Ponte trilogy is uh, Così fan tutte, uh, which is in some ways the least successful and the least um, easy to update to modern times in some ways. Uh, Nozze di Figaro, which is actually my personal favorite opera, um, or one of them anyway, uh, a, essentially a love story with lots of turns and twists and all of the energy of modernism that comes from the French Revolution baked in to the story. And then we have Don Giovanni, which is, as we'll hear, you know, a, a tale, a myth really, uh, that was very popular in Europe throughout this time. But it's written in this piece in a way where uh, we can be in real time for certain parts of the storytelling. Uh, it can turn on a dime. It can be poignant in one second and then immediately a joke. Um, I, I find it shockingly universal for something that is set in a kind of specific time and place. 
I am delighted to hear this because the, the thing that impresses me most about the opera, I, I love Mozart and I love this opera as well. But it's also how close up Da Ponte was to the original play by Tirso de Molina. I mean, there are some changes in names and things like that, but the story follows more or less the same plot. So I am here to contribute to the kind of background to the opera, although I must say that I was in Prague and went to one of those silly vignettes, not, not a real opera, but arias and especially in the opera where this was, in the opera house where this was performed first. And it was quite a, quite a treat. But the original play was by Tirso de Molina, whose life, he was born in the late 16th century and died in 1648, and whose life essentially coincides with the golden age or the golden century. It is the first appearance of Don Juan in the stage in Europe. And so it's, he is the one who creates the character. And of course, Mozart followed it. And in the 19th century, there is a very popular play uh, by a Spanish playwright called Sorrilla, which is still performed on November the 2nd in, in Spain and in Latin America every year. And of course, there is a Byron Don Juan. But Tirso de Molina's El Burlador de Sevilla, the trickster of Seville, and the guest of a stone is the first appearance of Don Juan. And one of the things that Jeremy said, and I am sort of going to build on this, that this is a very popular idea in Europe and essentially throughout all civilizations. And in, it's a, one of the Jungian archetypes, the trickster, the man who actually tries to not seduce so much, but to trick people. And there are certain things in the play, which was first performed in Madrid, and which is essentially one of the most popular plays in the Spanish theater. And Tirso de Molina, who became a monk and was a mercenary monk, was also one of the three great playwrights in Spain during this period. And you could see the connection between Tirso's 16th and 17th century work and the Habsburgs in Austria and Prague and Vienna, so there is a kind of continuity. The Habsburgs are no longer in Spain after 1700, but the branch in Austria is essentially the, the repository of all this knowledge for about Spain and traditions about Spain. I would like to say some things about the play itself and its historical inaccuracies and accuracies. So not the opera itself, but the play. And one is that it's set in Seville. And Tirso de Molina is borrowing from the fact that Seville is the, not only the largest city in the Iberian Peninsula, but it is also the capital of crime, the capital of the scammers. And Tirso would have read when he wrote this play, the Buscon or the Swindler by Quevedo, which is all about the kind of demi-monde in Seville of scammers and pickpockets and prostitutes. So Seville is a very important tool that he places the action in the 14th century and specifically before 1350. And the king is Alfonso XI of Castile. But the character, the Juan Tenorio, is the son of one of the great aristocratic families in Seville, the Tenorio family. So that there is a historical context to this. However, when he essentially places the action in Naples and has Don Juan's father as the ambassador to Naples, he is incorrect because there is no Spain in 1350. It's the kingdom of Castile and the kingdom of the crown of Aragon. 
So you could see how he mixes the realities of the 16th and 17th century with his uh, inaccurate knowledge of the past. I want to say one last thing because I don't want to monopolize this, but many people have thought and argue and written that this play, which is also combines the comedic with the tragic and so on, is really a play about free will and, and predestination. And that essentially the final scene, and I can come back to this later on, is, is critical and crucial in our reading of this play. But we could, we could expand on that later. I'm also interested in the production of the opera. You know, what contributed to this for, for him? Where was he putting this together? How was he putting this together? Why? Why did this result in, in a now famous opera? Uh, <laughs> I was just myself taking notes on what Teo said because uh, it, it piqued some ideas and uh, now I'm kind of wishing I had reread the history part of uh, exactly how this, uh, you know, if this was a commission. As Teo uh, mentioned, this piece premiered in Prague uh, and then was revised and performed in Vienna. And if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, uh, Nozze, uh, Di Figaro, which came uh, just before this, uh, that premiered directly in Vienna, and uh, Mozart, in fact, promised um, promised that he would couch the story as a love story, uh, because there are several things that happen throughout Mozart's work of this time that, to a modern listener, can seem proto-feminist, uh, pro-revolutionary. You know, if we look at Nozze, but we'll look at this with Giovanni too, the characters who are of the servant class actually are, and there's a special Italian adjective that the that Da Ponte and Mozart used to describe them in the libretto. Uh, they refer to particularly the female characters, uh, Zerlina, well, not so much in this one, but Susanna in Figaro as furba or clever. And she outsmarts not just her husband-to-be, Figaro, in that piece, but in some ways she is the co-conspirator, but really the leader of the gang with Countess Rosina. And all three of them are more clever than the Count, who represents an older world order, and it's lost its compass. And all of these other characters who should, you know, by that old world order, be less have less authority and less... Uh, knowledge and less smarts, they end up being the characters who are the heroes. And in a lot of ways, um, there's some, you know, it's tricky to know, first of all, who Don Giovanni is as he's drawn by Da Ponte and particularly Mozart's music. Uh, he has a total of three arias, which is not so strange for a title character. But if we look at the uh, arias and the music as they are composed, we don't learn much about that character at all. Uh, his first aria, Fincan del Vino, is essentially a frenetic call to come have a raucous drinking party. I find it fascinating that Seville is would have been known as, um, you know, the city of vice and crime. 
Don, Don Giovanni is the leader of it. But uh, aside from that surface information, we don't learn anything else from him there. The next time we see him sing alone, he's trying to uh, effect a seduction. And so in his aria, uh, De Vieni alla Finestra, he accompanies himself on the mandolin, uh, which he would have done in the premiere. But uh, nowadays, usually we have a, a guitar player or a mandolinist in the orchestra, and it's mimed on stage. But he's singing um, nothing genuine about himself. He's singing what he thinks the woman who he's trying to seduce wants to hear to uh, get her to do what he wants. And so he's like a, a chameleon. He, he keeps changing to try and, and um, get what he wants. The third aria that we hear him sing, he's not even... Uh, he's sort of in a costume, in a costume, and he's pretending to be Leporello. And this aria is barely an aria. It's an aria because he's singing by himself. But all of the men from the town have come to try and get Don Giovanni, and he has switched clothes with Leporello uh, to try and ev evade all of these women who are coming after him for vengeance. And he, as, as Leporello says, half of you go over there, Half of you go over there and seek out Don Giovanni. Meanwhile, he makes his own escape. So we never learn anything about him per se, but we do learn a lot about the other characters. Uh, if this were Charles Dickens writing Don Juan, in many ways we have the conquest of the past. We have the in in uh, Don Elvira. We have uh, the conquest of the present in Don Anna. And we have the conquest of the he wishes would be future in Zerlina. And their reactions to him tell us who, something about who he might be, but lots about who they are. Don Anna and Don Elvira, they are part of the noble class as he is, but uh, they don't have the same amount of agency. This is very interesting, and it, it really resonates with the fact that in the Spanish Golden Age plays, in the late 16th and early 17th century, all the way to the middle of the 17th century, servants have a great deal of agency. They are always essentially as a kind of mirror image of the masters, and they have a lot of liberty. And essentially that with some exceptions, this being one and life is a dream being the other, most of the Spanish plays of this period are very popular in nature. They talk about peasants, they give agency to peasants and women. So I think it, it connects with what you are just describing about Mozart and Giovanni. The other thing, of course, is that I'm, I, I teach this, this play in class, in a class on, on early modern Spain. And I always emphasize that it's less about the seduction of women. There is no indication in the play but about being a trickster, about essentially tricking them, not only tricking the women, but tricking the men in the process of tricking the women. And in that sense, I, I was saying before, this is a Jungian archetype, the trickster. It appears in no, 
Norse mythology. It appears in, in all kinds of popular beliefs. It appears in James Fraser. The Golden Bow is one of these characters that's universal. This is particularly the case in the Spain of the late 16th and early 17th century, because honor is essentially vested in the woman's body. So if you want to dishonor someone, you dishonor the women. And he's not interested in the sexual conquest so much as in the act of dishonoring. There is a play by Calderón de la Barca, who is the greatest of all the playwrights of the period. Lope de Vega second and Tirso de Molina third. But in Calderón play, which is called the doctor of his own honor. He is a doctor. He is absolutely in madly in love with his wife. His wife is a very wonderful woman, very chaste. Nonetheless, a nobleman has essentially been interested in seducing her. The kind of Don Juan element here. He never does. He never succeeds. And yet the shadow that is cast upon her forces the doctor, this is one of the most horrible plays of the stage, to kill her because his honor had been compromised by the attention she has called to herself. So it's called the doctor, the, the doctor of his own honor. He cures his honor by killing his wife. So you could see how this is a, a play which is on some levels comic, on the other levels very tragic because it's about this dishonoring of women for no other purpose than to trick them and to dishonor the men who are responsible for them. Don Gonzalo in this manner, the man who, whose daughter he revenges at the end. You know, I, f I find that super interesting. I'm curious, um, you know, if there's an element of him uh, dishonoring women by uh, making them conquests and and dishonoring the male characters too, we could look at Don Ana and Don Otavio. Uh, Don Otavio is a, a tremendously difficult role to play. It's an interesting sing. It's a little bit difficult, but many, many men who are lyric kind of tenors can sing it. But it's a difficult character to make really resonate and not seem... Uh, very milk toast. You know, at the beginning of the opera, we see kind of in real time, as if it were a contemporary movie, we see uh, Don Anna and uh, Don Giovanni running out of the Commendatore's house. The Commendatore is following them. He's uh, stopped in mid process a seduction and possible sexual assault of Don Anna. Uh, Ottavio comes on the scene. Uh, oh, the commendatore is killed. Anna is in grief. Giovanni runs away. Don Ottavio comes on the scene. Anna asks for vengeance. They sing a duet. Um, Giovanni and Leporello meet up in hiding in the middle of the night. So this is playing out in real time. Uh, but Ottavio, he's a man of honor. He's a man of the noble class. But one often wants more from him. We want a more vehement and a more immediate kind of vengeance seeking. He's, he's a stand-up guy, but the actors who play him have to find a way to make him forceful without leaving this world that we don't really have now of, of nobility. And Anna, you know, one of the things that a modern audience kind of thinks, we think that maybe she wasn't into Don Ottavio all that much in the first place, because when, uh, when he, toward the end of the opera, asks her to marry 
him. He does this throughout the opera. But at the end, she says, no, I need another year of grieving. And for anyone at the time, they would have understood that mourning period as normal. But modern audiences look at it and think, she doesn't think he's kind of man enough because he hasn't been acting the right way. And of course, she doesn't want to marry him. And then it, it begs the question of whether or not she might have invited, at least to a certain extent, uh, Giovanni's advances. I think that's a fairly big misunderstanding of what the piece really is. But um, if, if there is this element of Giovanni uh, just making conquests and dishonoring both men and women, in a way, there seems to me to be also a parallel dishonoring of fate or of God or of, you know, life and death. Uh, one thing that's remarkable about this piece, you know, we think of, we think of operas um, and their overtures as uh, from this period generally being cheerful, generally being major keys, and they may or may not have anything to do with the actual plot or the actual mood of the opera. And this one is remarkably different. It starts like this. Very somber, very dramatic. And um, what is so unusual about this is this is musical foreshadowing from the very first note in the key of D minor, which at the time would have um, been understood to be a, a key that might even evoke hell. And this music we hear again uh, with very similar, but uh, very similar orchestration with one really interesting addition. This time, it's all the winds, all of the strings, the French horns, um, timpani. Uh, when it comes back, it's when the uh, ghost of the commendatory has returned to make the uh, make or break moment for Giovanni. Either he repents or he gets dragged to hell. And when this music returns, there's the addition of three trombones, which during this time would have been extremely strange. And it gives an extra weight, a darkness, even more somberness, and almost a supernatural kind of um, effect. So I, I just, while you we were talking, Teo, I thought that this seems parallel, that uh, Giovanni is so perhaps even narcissistic, like he can dishonor death even. Teo, so when you teach these plays now, how do students respond to this representation of women and the idea of, you know, honor the female body? And Jeremy, also just um, in terms of, you know, modern audiences, do you have any sense how people respond to this now? Well, uh, my students read three plays. They read this, Puente Ovejuna, which gives prominence to the women who have agency and the ones who really move the whole action. And to Calderón de la Barca, Life is a Dream, in which there is a magnificent female character, which is Rosaura, who dresses like a male, of course, very, very Shakespearean. So in the Spanish stage of the early modern period, the women have a role that it is very forceful and have agency. 
And this one they do as well. They come all clamoring in, at least in the play, for his death. So the students are right often about the fact that how much agency has been given to women. Remember, this is also the world of Cervantes. And Cervantes is the first writer in Europe to make that kind of courtly ideal stand all the way to the peasants. So a peasant woman like Dorothea, uh, who is a story within the story, has an incredible amount of, of presence and agency in the story. But I wanted to go back to the fact that this representation of Octavio is also in the original play. And it's a very difficult one to understand. But I think that there is a departure towards the end of the play, because when the stoned Comendadore invites Don Juan to come and have dinner with him, Don Juan is full of bravura. You know, he's, he's such a, a brave man and he eats the, all the awful things that he serves and drinks all the awful drinks and so on. But then when he gives a hand and begins to burn, the Comendador doesn't give him the, in the play the option of repenting. In fact, and this is what I meant about free will and predetermination. Don Juan says, bring a priest, I want to confess. And the Comendador says, too late. <laughs> you are gone to hell. And of course, in a world in which um, dying without confession in the Catholic world of the early modern period, dying without confession was to go to hell. And there is already a kind of precedent for this in one of the most important plays of the period, which is La Celestina, written in 1500 by a converso, in which the characters all die without confession. They all commit suicide. They're all going to hell. So the wages of sin is eternal death. And this is very obvious in this play, which is debating the issue, can you be saved at the end, if you have good intentions, well, he's never given that opportunity. He's, he's, in fact, very much like in Mozart, his end is already predicted in the opening lines of the play. So this is uh, an, an important moment in the fact that he is not given the chance to repent. He wrote another play, Tirso de Molina, uh, the title in Spanish is Condenado for Desconfiado, the man who is condemned for being too cautious or too, for doubting. And it's a criminal and it's a priest. And the criminal has a little spot in his heart for love and forgiveness. And he's safe. The priest is all about doubting and he's damned. Wow. In the, in the 19th century, Sorrilla wrote a play where Don Juan does not die. Very much like Faust compared to Faust, he is redeemed by love. He finds love and it's a very romantic play in like 1840s. And it's a still play and it's far more, should we say, popular in Spain today than Tirso's, the world of Sorrilla. I would imagine a lot of that has to do with the change of aesthetic uh, between the periods in which those source materials were written. Um, you know, I'm sure the romantics would have had a much bigger appetite for a redemption story. As we know from Goethe's Faust, uh, it's safe as well too. Uh, th there's something important as well, historically, that he was born in 1578. He, his early life coincides with the, with the high point of Spain, which 
ends essentially truly by the death of Philip II in 1598. And then there is a period of decline. And during this the period of decline, there is a great deal of writings called writing by arbitristas, reformers. How do you reform Spain? How do you stop the decline? What do you do? And a great deal of that has to do with morality, with masculinity. And so this play is very much within that context of reforming society by not acting like this, by showing you the consequences of acting like this. You know, I, um, uh, toward the end of uh, what Teo was saying, he mentioned, uh, you know, sort of baked into this literature is a, is a portrait of masculinity and the fruits that come of this, uh, can we call it toxic masculinity centuries before we would call it toxic masculinity? And to get back to your question, Muriel, about uh, how modern audiences of the opera perceive this treatment of women, I think it's it's complex because obviously none of these are model examples unless we perhaps considered the quite modern relationship between Zerlina, uh, the conquest of the future, Giovanni hopes, and her boyfriend, husband-to-be, Mazzetto, also a peasant, and they have like the most modern, genuine, simple relationship. At the end, they just decide to go home and keep living their lives and have some dinner and brush off the troubles of the day. But in many ways, one of the most fascinating things about Giovanni as an opera is that uh, in some instances, Mozart writes he doesn't even depict drama that's in the story in music. He actually only communicates the drama through music. And in uh, a lot of ways, the musical depictions of these three conquests, past, present, and future, uh, they have three different musical languages, actually. Donanna is perhaps the most conventional and straightforward. It's very lyrical writing. Um, often arias in two parts, which in some ways presage the uh, Cavatina Cabaletta structure that's going to come in the bel canto period. She has some of the most, uh, not the only person with florid writing, but she has some of the most florid writing with lots of coloratura musically. But, uh, you know, often Elvira, the conquest of the past, she's, a lot of people like to look at her with scorn and kind of make fun of her because they say she keeps... She keeps duping herself and thinking he really cares. And she keeps coming after him, um, trying to get him to honor the fact that they are man and wife, uh, whatever that means in the context of this story. Mozart actually just thinks she's old fashioned. And we can tell because he doesn't write in the same musical vocabulary for her. He writes as if she was a Baroque kind of singer. Uh, from 50 years before this musical vocabulary. And uh, that creates a little bit of humor by itself. But um, in a lot of ways, I think it her values as a character and her musical values show that she believes in the possibility of long-term commitment and love. And it's not just Giovanni, whether he fulfills that or not, that reveals something about her. Zerlina, on the other hand, uh, in many ways, she's the most forward-looking. Uh, when we listen to the very famous duet, La Cirada en la Mano, if we just do a very quick phrase structure analysis and understand this in terms of a seduction, he starts with very long phrases setting out his um, seduction. 
she responds in long phrases that match exactly, uh, like it's an antecedent and a consequent, exactly the same length. He's like, hey, baby, maybe you should come with me. She's like, hey, maybe not. I'm not quite sure, but you seem nice. The phrases start to get shorter and shorter as she loses her resolve. They're still exactly the same length, but, um, you know, he's starting to convince her. Uh, Then the phrases start to overlap. And as they do, she starts to lose her tonal center in the harmonies of the piece, and she starts singing chromatically as if Mozart is depicting her wavering and not even being able to be stable. But at the moment of truth, uh, Giovanni invites her to come to his castle uh, where they can just sort of spend some time together. He says twice, andiam, andiam, and there's a bit of a pause, and she answers him. She chooses to say, Andiam, let's go. And from that moment of the duet on, they sing note for note, always together. And their intervals are almost always either thirds or sixths or tenths. Now that might sound sort of like mumbo jumbo, but if you listen to like 80s pop love songs, like we kind of do being a child of the 80s, those are the intervals of love songs still in this century. And um, it's no accident that Mozart depicts it that way. I don't think Zerlina fools herself at all. She knows that's not really a thing. But it could just be a fun last night before her wedding kind of experience. And uh, I think she the part that she might fool herself about is that she thinks she's um, strong enough to kind of play the scene and um, be in control. And uh, that entire process is interrupted by Conquest of the Past, who says, I've been here before. Don't even do it. Like, just stop. And then the act moves forward. I am struck by this, and and as you spoke, there's something that you said that really resonated with me, which is that they are people writing in two very different contexts, cultural and intellectual, and the Council of Trent have just ended when he has, when Tirso is born, and so on. But it also led me to think about specific passages in the Spanish literature of the Golden Age, which always include a male trying to seduce or to trick a woman. But there there are some cases in Cervantes' uh, Don Quixote in which there is an attempt to a forceful rape. Uh, But all rapes are forceful, but to a rape, but uh, a physical one, and, and, and the woman pushes him down the the hill and he dies. So you could see where things are. He, she defends her own. But it is all about the play of words. It's all about the manner in which you can trick someone by words. And except the idea that you pretend to be somebody else in the dark, which is also another trope in Western literature, then it's all about weaving words around you so that I trap you in those words, which is precisely what a trickster does. I'm so glad that you came back to the archetype of a trickster. You know, I I had to admit, um, while we were preparing for this this week, uh, 
I know that Jungian analysis is very frequently used to analyze texts, and we use it in opera too, but I've never specifically studied it. But the thing that kept jumping out um, to me is that each of the archetypes uh, is something that lays within each of us at a subconscious level. I want to ask both of you a question. I am an opera novice. I have not seen a production of Don Giovanni, but I want to ask each of you when I do, because I am going to, how do you think I should approach it? What should I look for? How will I get, you know, how will I get the most out of, out of the production? The truth of the matter is this. I am, I am not an expert in music. I love opera. I am very fond of early opera. So I am fond of Mozart and Gluck is, and Euridici is my favorite one. But if I go to an opera by Mozart, I am caught by the music and the singing rather than by the story. The story becomes secondary to, to the art of this man who could make music like this. That's beautiful. I'm, I might say the flip side of the coin, actually. Being someone who mostly listens to opera, because being a musician, that's kind of how I'm oriented. I, you know, often when we refer to Wagner in a completely different con context, we talk about his goal of creating uh, what's known as a Gesamtkunstwerk, or a complete work of art where every aspect of it is is integrally knit together to um, so that everything serves the same goal of telling a story of being an artistic product. And I think in a lot of ways, Wagner, sorry, Wagner, but he was trying to capture what Mozart effortlessly did at his best all the time. And so, uh, you know, I can be watching or listening to a Mozart opera and it just feels like one fabric. And then all of a sudden I'll be caught by a joke that's still funny now. Um, to me, it's it's uh, this kind of timelessness that is the marker of great art in any era. Um, and it's just remarkable that Mozart could do it so frequently. I would like to give a huge thank you to both Teo and Jeremy. I feel incredibly thank energized. You, thank you. And thank you so much. Thank you so much. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on Apple iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Remember to share with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera. <laughs>